Who or what do you worship? Who or what do you bow before? You might think that you are not religious. You might see yourself as a business person who looks at life realistically. Sunday morning is the time for you to read through the whole New York Times, especially the sections dealing with Wall Street. But the truth is that deep inside your heart, you are a worshiper. The question is, are you worshiping a true God? Today, our study leader Dave Wurtson takes us to Revelation chapter five. In this chapter, John the Apostle pictures for us a symbol that needs to grab the allegiance of our hearts. Dave begins our study talking about another symbol, the swastika. Today, it stands for brutal murder and evil. But in 1933, in pre-World War II Germany, it was a symbol that generated pride in millions of young Germans' hearts. Let's join Dave and discover the deception that led to this false, murderous worship, and the holy symbol that calls for our hearts' allegiance today. June 30th, 1933. That's when the Nazi Party was born. Now to us, you know that red flag and the white circle with that black Nazi swastika plastered on it has become a symbol of infamy. It's become a symbol of shame. But you need to realize that back in 1933 in Germany, it wasn't a symbol of shame. In 1933, young Germans by the thousands were enthralled by the power of that of that symbol. You see, they wanted something to believe in. The Germans had lost World War One. They had lost millions of soldiers. They felt that their leaders had let them down. The army was begging to be able to reestablish the old traditional kind of Hohenzollern、uh, monarchy. They wanted to be able to come back into the old traditionalism, and they wanted to destroy the fires of democracy that were just barely burning, like little embers in Germany. And Hitler, this young Austrian that had been in prison and had gathered a bunch of thugs around him, was able to begin to capture the imagination of people. As you live your life, you're going to be challenged just like that. If suddenly our nation goes through tremendous upheavals, some of you lived through the '60s. You remember what it was like for Kennedy suddenly to be cut down by an assassin's bullet. You remember getting the news that Martin Luther King had been shot down. You remember Bobby Kennedy being shot down. And some of my close friends, you marched for causes back then. You believed. Some of you even threw bombs for causes. In other words, you were gathered together with thousands of other collegians, and you would gather together in buses, and you would go down, and you were ready to give your life for your cause. You see, we're built for worship, and you're either going to do it in your own private life as you worship God and as you worship the Son of God, and as you do it corporately in the body of Christ, or you're going to worship something else. Somebody else is going to grab your imagination. You see, Hitler understood that that if you can just use a powerful symbol, if you can get a picture that that galvanizes the population, and if you can preach to them eloquently and powerfully, and and arouse their passions within, if you can get them marching to these stirring drum beats, you can conquer the world. In 1933, a lot of Germans, in fact, German young people by the thousands, marched the goose steps, and and they would have torches, and they would march all night long throughout the cities of Germany. They were going to bring in the Third Reich. The Book of Revelation is about a thousand-year reign. It's going to end with a thousand-year reign. You know what the Nazis called their Third Reich? 
In common Nazi parlance, they referred to the Third Reich as the Thousand Year Reich. Where do you think they got that from? Where do you think in their German background, the culture that gave us Luther, you just sang a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. But that culture in 1933 started to look to another fortress, the fortress of arms, the fortress of German intellectualism, the forces of German culture, the forces of, of hatred, the forces of bigotry began to stir this people. I want you to understand that, as, that what we're talking about as we study the book of Revelation is dealing with all that kind of history. And what I want you to know is that there's coming a day in the future where your worship is going to be challenged. I want you to understand that there's a symbol out there. I want you to understand that there's a symbol out there that should stir you. It should make your heart pound faster. It should make you want to rise up and rejoice. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, ask us a very important question. Who do you bow down before? Who do you worship? Who do you believe has the answer? Who do you believe has meaning for your life? Turn to Revelation chapter 5, because in Revelation chapter 4, we saw the courts of heaven worshiping before the Creator God. We learn that the reason that we should bow down before this Creator God is because all of our heartbeats depend upon Him. I challenged you last week if you're debating, should you worship your job or should you worship Jesus? Who do you think gives you power in your heart to go to work every day? It only makes sense for you to bow before your creator. Your very heartbeat depends upon him. You might be debating, should I worship God? Should I honor God? Should I obey God? Or should I worship my boyfriend or my girlfriend or some other object of love? Just stop and think. Revelation chapter 4 says that the heartbeat of our boyfriend is totally dependent upon the living God that we're here to worship today. The heartbeat of our girlfriend is beating because of God. It's absolute insanity to put anything on the level with God, and yet all of us do that. That's what Revelation is about. Some of you worship music. Some of you just, you know, man, you got to get those earphones in your ear, and man, you love that beat, and you love the music. And you feel yourself, man, i got to have my music. I don't want to have God. If I have God, then I don't have my music anymore. Well, your music is showing you who you worship. The content of the lyrics that you pound in your head shows who you're worshiping, what you believe in, what you're excited about. And I want to challenge you, the author of music, the author of rhythm, the author of melody, the author of harmony is the living God. We're going to learn in this chapter that the angels are singing. Who do you sing to? Who do you sing about? Who do you dance to? Who do you dance to? You see, who you dance to reveals where your heart is. What you get excited about. What makes you feel like standing up and celebrating. That's the kind of a thing that reveals what's going on in our heart. Revelation chapter 5, before we get into the career of the Antichrist, before we start seeing God shaking this planet like somebody harvesting pecans and just shaking that tree of of human destiny, in Revelation chapter 5, we're back up in heaven again. Look at it, Revelation chapter 5, and we have the Apostle John seeing another stirring sight. He says, then I saw, then I saw, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The one who sat on the throne is our creator God. I saw in the right hand of the creator that's on the throne. Remember, the throne is the key to this whole, these whole two chapters. It's about the throne, the throne, the throne. 
Who's in control here? Who's going to determine how history eventually ends? You think, some of you think, man, my big business, Standard Oil, they control the destiny of planet Earth. No, they don't. You say, the military might of the United States, they control the destiny of planet Earth. No, they don't. If the Lord tarries, there might come a day when the United States is just like Britain. It'll move possibly like Britain moved from being the mighty conquering lion to being a little whimpering pussycat. And suddenly there was new rulers, new kingdoms, new, new national alignments. That could happen to our nation. Who's going to be ruling? That's what this chapter is about. Who can hold the scroll of destiny? Notice that it's written on both sides, so it's filled. The scroll of destiny has the future. How's planet Earth going to end? Hitler declared in June 30th, 1933, we're going to initiate a thousand-year reign. And Germans by the millions marched to that beat. It lasted 12 years and four months. Produced bigotry death for millions. Totally realigned Europe. History's never been the same. But guess what? Hitler's dead and gone. And it didn't last a thousand years, just 12 years and four months. And culminated in four and a half years of horrible warfare. So this scroll is written within and behind. And what it's communicating to us is that the living creator God holds in his hand a scroll. It's like he's holding it in his right hand on his palm. And as we look at that scroll, we can tell that it's filled with the destiny of planet Earth. That's what it's describing. But it's sealed with seven seals. In the ancient Roman world, an important document, a document that was official, a document that was going to be a will or a testament, would be sealed so that it could only be opened by an official person that was worthy to open it. And that's what we have pictured here. As we look at the throne, we see the creator God. We see this radiating light. And he's pictured as holding in his hand the scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? This scroll, according to the book of Revelation, is the end of history. Some of you feel that history is just open-ended. You might have been taught in the university that life is kind of a revolving cyclic door. It just goes round and round, and who knows how it's going to end. And some of you believe in you're kind of going to come back in reincarnation, and life is just a cyclic thing. Maybe you were an ape the last time. Maybe you were a mouse the time before that. And now you're just you, and maybe next time, because you haven't been such a good child, you'll be a flea. That's what a lot of people on planet Earth believe. In other words, life is just cyclic. You just keep being recycled. But the book of Revelation is telling us something very different. And you're going to have to decide who you're going to believe. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to commit all of your destiny. You're going to commit your heartbeat. You're going to commit where you're going to spend all of eternity. You're going to have to decide who you're going to trust. And the book of Revelation presents to us that there's a creator God who's holding the scroll of destiny in his hand. According to the book of Revelation, we're going to have the scroll unsealed. And it's going to tell us how history is going to end. It's going to tell us when all the smoke is cleared, who's going to be on the throne. And I want you to understand who he is and, and why you need to commit everything to him. That's what the scroll means. The book of Revelation closes with the earth gone. With all the businesses gone, all the armies gone, all the present creation gone, and you need to find out at the end of the scroll of the destiny of planet Earth, who's still there? Who's still existing? Who's still reigning? Who holds the key to power and glory and majesty? That's what's being raised in this chapter. It says, I saw a mighty angel, a strong mighty angel, proclaimed in a loud voice, one thing I feel when we get to heaven is there's going to be some, some mighty stirring scenes. 
There's going to be angels that proclaim with great, mighty voice. A strong angel that's very dramatic. He goes forth and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll and to read it? But no one in heaven, verse 3, or on earth or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I want you to know, Hitler didn't know how history would end. He wasn't worthy to open the scroll. In fact, he was really just a thug. All of his life, from the time he was just a little boy, he just cursed Jews and, and claimed that they were the blame for everything, talked about murderous violence against them. He learned about the slaying of a million and a half Arminians during World War I by the Turks, and he laughed at that and said, who remembers the Arminians now? It generated in his idea, in his mind, in his polluted, degenerate, violent mind that, man, if they can do that to a million and a half Arminians, why not multiply it by six or seven and we'll just exterminate our nemesis, the Jewish people. That led to the Holocaust. He thought he wrote the scroll of destiny, but he didn't. Down through history, there's been those that have said, I'm going to rule. You have, when John was writing this book, Domitian, the Roman emperor, was saying, I'm going to control history. I'm going to control what happens on planet Earth. This little fledgling sect of of those that worship the Jewish carpenter from Palestine. They're just fledgling fools. Because it's really about Rome. But the Caesars have come and gone. When the Arabs' invasion took place, men like Saladin and the caliphs of the, of the different empires, beginning in Egypt and then moving, beginning in Arabia and then moving to Egypt, moving up to, to Turkey, in fact, right up to World War I, the caliphs of the Ottoman Empire would say, we rule planet Earth. We write the scroll of destiny. But most of you have never even heard, most of the kids today hardly even know what an Ottoman Empire is. It's gone. Nobody even thinks about it anymore. The Kaiser in World War I said, we're going to initiate another Reich, another kingdom. He came and went. The Fuhrer came and went. When I was a little kid, Khrushchev, I've told you, I remember sitting at home in New Jersey, and he took his shoe off and pounded on the United Nations table. We're going to bury you. Communism is going to be the world rule. I remember preachers telling us all, man, communism is going to destroy all of us, and it's going to be the end of the world, and communism is a horrible, horrible enemy that's going to rule the world. I remember shaking in my boots as a little kid. Oh, no, communists are going to come and bomb us. Communism has come and gone. Khrushchev is dead and gone. Because he didn't hold the scroll of destiny. Today in the world, there's world rulers that will step forth. In your lifetime, there will be rulers that will step forth. And I want to challenge you. Don't you ever give your ultimate allegiance to anyone except who I talked to you about today. If there would have been thousands of German young people that when they were challenged to take the oath of allegiance, if when they went to the German army in the 30s, when they went to the German army and they commanded them to take an oath, a personal oath of allegiance, of absolute undying loyalty to Hitler, if there would have been thousands of German young people, young men, that would have said, no, we will not bow before anyone, we will not swear our allegiance to anyone, not even German nationalism, not even the Fuhrer, Because we worship someone else. It would have made all the difference in the world. Millions of people would not have died. Some of you would not have an empty place in your family. What we're talking about is really important. Because every one of you are going to be swept into the vortex of world history. I'm going to be too. And we're going to face with challenges. There's going to be things that just challenge the pulse beat of our heart and and the, the drumbeat of where we want to go and what we want to be. And John's revelation says, the angel cried out, who can open the scroll of destiny? 
And no one, there was no one found. Look where it says. There was no one in heaven that could open the scroll. They searched through earth and nobody on earth could open the scroll. They searched under the earth. Some of you kids are going to be tempted to worship the demonic. Some of you adults are into the demonic. You've seen the power of the occult. You've seen the power of what Satan can do. You're enamored by it. Some of you are sucked in. Hollywood gives you popularizations of witchcraft. And it's just a big joke. It's not a big joke. I want you to know that there's no angel. There's no ruler on planet earth. There's no demonic being under the earth. No one can open the scroll. And my brothers and sisters, you better connect with the only one in all the universe that can go to the hand of the creator and take from his right hand the scroll of where history ends up. Because there's only one being in all the universe that can take that scroll and open it. But before that being is revealed, before he steps forward, John the Apostle had an incredible reaction. Notice what John does. He says, as John sees that there's no one that can open a scroll, it says, I wept. John says, I wept bitterly. I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside of it. You know, that really grips my heart. Do you care? You know, I think as Americans, I think we can be so caught up in what we're involved in, can't we? We can be so caught up in our job. We can so, be so caught up in just our families. We can be just so caught up in our life that who cares what happens in history? How many of you heard some Americans say, who cares what happens in Europe? What does it have to do with us? Who cares what happens in China? Who cares what happens on planet Earth? You see, as Americans, we can just say, well, I'm just going to live for now. Well, I got news for you. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to care about the people in this world. And I want to continue to challenge you. We need to be like John. John wept because it looked like nobody could open the scroll of destiny. What was John weeping over? Because right now we live in a world where it takes faith to believe that things are going to turn out all right. It takes faith to believe that justice will ultimately be done. Some of you listening to me right now, you've opted out on Jesus. You've opted out on God. You say, why have we done that? And I would say you've done it. Because you have faced the unfairness of life. Some of you are police officers. Every single day, you have to work with the unfairness of life. You see someone that's totally unsuspecting, totally innocent, suddenly get blown away. Some of you have been in war. Some of you were in battle. And you saw your best friends die like flies around you. And you started to feel like, if there's a God in heaven, he must be deaf. If there's a God in heaven, he must be blind. If there's a God in heaven, I don't want anything to do with him because I don't like planet Earth. The scripture is saying, don't make that decision yet. You see, the book of Revelation is about people, you and I, crying out for there to be justice done on planet Earth. You see, millions of believers down through the centuries have been martyred for their faith. Zany, crazy madness. Cut down. Where was God? When that happened. And so you can decide in your life. You can decide in your life that there isn't a God. This world is just chaos theory. This world is just blind probabilities. If you make that decision, if you follow it through, you'll end in total emptiness. You'll lose a reason to love your family. You'll lose a reason to love your kids, to love your wife, to love your husband, to love your friends. You'll just lose a reason for being. And what I want you to understand is that the Bible doesn't run away from the problem of evil... 
The Bible doesn't run away from the fact that we live in a world where God is cursed, where evil has taken place, where things don't add up. That's what John is crying about. John is crying because Jesus promised him at the beginning of this vision that Jesus would show him the things which you have seen. He would capture a vision of the exalted Christ. He would see Jesus high and lifted up. And John saw Jesus, remember, as he walked through the churches. And then Jesus promised John, I'm going to show you the things which are. I'm going to show you the present church age. But then Jesus in Revelation 1.19 says, I'm also going to show you what's going to take place after these things. That's the future. What is that future? That's the future of how everything finally ends up. The book of Revelation is about the justice and the vengeance and the true fairness of God. It's about how God stepped into planet Earth and dealed with his enemies. And John's upset because it looks like That's not going to happen. No one is worthy to open the scroll. That's what he's weeping about. Some of you have felt that in your own heart, in your own life. Some of you have faced tremendous injustice, and you're angry about it. And you wonder, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? The book of Revelation says God is going to do something. The book of Revelation says that there's going to be a scroll that's opened up, and God's going to deal with things. And God, the book of Revelation, moves us towards a time when this world and the thousand-year reign of Christ is really going to run the way God wants it to be run. And you're going to have to decide whether you're going to believe that by faith now. That's what John's crying about. You see, faith can only take so much abuse. Faith can only face so much inconsistency. And John's weeping because it looks like all the prayers of the saints down through the ages are going to go unanswered. And God's not going to do anything. And then in the court of heaven, someone steps forth. The elders, one of the elders said to him, don't weep, stop crying. And I want to say to every one of you, moms and dads, young people, children, adults. John comes, this this elder comes to every one of you and says, stop weeping. Stop feeling that life you know what. Stop feeling that you face the injustice, that nothing's going to be done. He says, stop your weeping. Why? See the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want you to see who Jesus is. You're so exclusive about this Jesus stuff. You're so into this Jesus stuff. You know, you're always talking about this Jesus person. Why don't you talk about Gandhi? Why don't you talk about Buddha? Why don't you talk about Confucius? Man, there's a lot of... Talk about Socrates. Man, I've been in some churches where they, you know, they, they had the books of Socrates and the books of Confucius and all these different people. Why aren't you into that kind of a church? And I want to tell you why. Because the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 49, if you turn to Genesis 49, the founder of the Jewish people, the one that produced the 12 tribes of Israel in Genesis 49... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was written hundreds upon hundreds of years before Christ. And in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob gave a blessing to his sons. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 39, verse verse 9. He said to Judah, his fourth son, this is the unexpected son. I would never expect this son to get the blessing, but look what it says. It says, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from your prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Now look what Jacob says. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom this ruler's staff belongs. And the obedience of who will be his? The obedience of the tell me. The obedience of the... 
nations. Who did Hitler want the obedience? Hitler wanted the obedience of the nations. Khrushchev wanted the obedience of the nations. Millions of people were galvanized by those world rulers. But who is the only one who has the right to command the obedience of the nations? It has to be a lion from the tribe of Judah. The one that has the bravery and the courage and the power like a lion. And he has to be a Jewish man. And he has to be from a very specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. And that was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And John, when he sees this vision, he has the elder tell him, Don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah that Jacob predicted would come has come. Notice it says something else about him. He's not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but it says in Revelation chapter 5 that he's also the root of David. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. You say, Dave, where in that world is this idea of a root? Well, in Texas, you've all seen parts ground. You've seen trees, for example, that have been cut down because it became so dry and we, we ran out of all moisture and the tree was blown over by the wind and so you cut it off right at the ground. And yet the next spring, when the rains came, you suddenly saw a sprout that came up from that root out of dry ground. Isaiah chapter 11 describes that kind of a scene. The house of David, under the attack of their Middle Eastern enemies, had fallen into disrepute. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians Babylonians destroyed them. And the children of Israel were wrestling. The children of Israel were wrestling in their history in the Old Testament with even their own existence. There was a really good chance that there would cease to be any Judah. There would cease to be any Jewish people. There were times in their history where millions of them were taken into captivity. But Isaiah gave an incredible prophecy. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 of Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump or the root of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel. The spirit of power. The spirit of knowledge. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But instead he will judge with righteousness. He will judge the needy. And justice he will give decision for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Look at verse 6, the famous verse. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. Mary and I were going through uh, Cedar Hill State Park, and we were checking it out. I couldn't believe how big that state park is. But one of the things I really scratched my head, I don't know how anybody would ever want to camp out there, because as you went into one campsite after another, they said, beware of the snakes. I mean, every single place I went to, watch out for snakes, watch out for snakes. I, you know, mothers with little children just love to go camping out in places with signs like that. You see, right now, nature's twisted. It's violent. Man, you take your kids even on a state camp out, go to a state campground, and you got to watch out for the snakes because diamondback rattlers will nail you. But the book of Isaiah says there's going to come a time when, man, you can just send your kids and they can sleep with the snakes. You'll have lions and you'll have, you'll have wolves, for example, that cuddle up with lambs and lambs that cuddle up in the warmth of a wolf. Who's going to create all that? The root out of Jesse. Do you believe that? Is that the one that you want to follow? The one that has that kind of power, that has, that has that kind of might? 
The elders saying, stop weeping, John. There's someone that can open the scroll of destiny. There's one that can tell you how it's all going to end. He's a lion and he is a root. Strange imagery. He's a lion. He has bravery, might, and power, just like the king of the beasts. But he's also someone who's going to come up out of a background where you wouldn't expect him. He's going to come out of poverty, out of dry ground. And he's going to have a career that you would never have expected. And yet he's going to bring in this kingdom of righteousness. So he's the root of David. And notice the elder says he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now I want you to get the combination. We look here today. We see a lion. We see a root. Now, as I turn with John and begin to gaze upon this one, who would I expect to see? Well, I expect to see Aslan of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales. Man, the root thing I really have trouble with. You know, maybe a, a powerful tree that's growing out of a dry root, something like that. But, you know, John doesn't see either one of those. He sees something I would never expect. You know, as all of my life, athletic football teams, Detroit, what? The Detroit Lions, the Midlothian Panthers. You have one name after another. You have the Cougars and the Jaguars. And, and you have all, how many of you have ever heard of the Lambs? <laughs> the Midlothian Lambs. Boy, doesn't that ring? Look what it says here in the next verse. Then I saw a lamb. Then I saw a lamb. Standing as if he had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne. And circled by the four living creatures and the elders. Who's at the center of heaven? Remember the four living creatures are the mighty cherubim. The, the armed guard of God you might say. The, in, the interior cabinet. The interior circle around the throne. These mighty guardian angels. The cherubim. And then you have the 24 elders. The court of the angelic kingdom. Sitting around the throne. And who's in the middle of it all? A lamb standing with the marks of slaughter still in his body. It's a very strange image. But you know, John, John the Apostle, in one brilliant symbol. Remember I told you that you're all going to follow symbols? You're all going to be moved by pictures? Do you know that Hitler spent weeks and weeks trying to decide on the flag of Nazi Germany? He looked at one flag after another. He chose the red for a reason. Chose the white with the brilliant black of the, of the swastika. Because he knew the power of a symbol. And he used it for hell. He used it to destroy millions of people. I got another symbol to give you today. And I want this to be the symbol that you march before. That you march for. That you swear allegiance to. The symbol is of a lamb. And he has the marks of his slaughter in his body. Do you realize that for all of eternity... You're going to be able to see the nail prints in his hands. You know why? Because God chose to write your redemptive story by the piercing of his hands and the piercing of his feet. I don't understand all the reasons for why God chose to deal with our sin, to deal with injustice. I told you that there's only one that's worthy to open the scroll of destiny. There's only one that's worthy to open how history's going to end and just tell us how justice is going to be done. But before we get into the book of Revelation, it tells us about God wreaking out his powerful, mighty armies of heaven against injustice, against wickedness. 
John reminds us that there was another place where the judgment of God was poured out. There was another place where where the righteousness of heaven poured out its wrath. And it was on the cross of Calvary because God loved each and every one of you so much that he gave his son to die for you. We worship a lamb that has the marks of slaughter upon him. What does the lamb remind us of? For Jewish people down through the centuries of Old Testament faith, from the Exodus deliverance, they thought of a lamb. They thought of a Passover lamb that was slain so that they would be delivered from Egypt. Their firstborn would be protected and they would be delivered and they would be delivered from the might of Pharaoh. Isaiah chapter 53 describes to us a suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, it tells us that he will be before his slaughterers silent. He will not open his mouth. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he will not open his mouth. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the silent lamb, the one that didn't turn away from the the agony of the cross, the one that, that didn't walk away from Pilate, the one that didn't walk away from Herod, the one that just silently stood there and took the brunt of the punishment of sin against himself, the lamb, that was slaughtered for us. The Old Testament predicted that there would ultimately come a Passover lamb. You could barely miss it. It was really hard to miss it. John the Baptist and John the Apostle's writing, the same author that wrote the book of Revelation, stood up down by the Jordan River. I can just see John there in the barrenness of the wilderness. And he, and he told the people that just like this wilderness is dry and barren, and I'm crying out because I'm going to point you to the one that's going to bring life. He says, don't bow before me. Don't believe that I'm the Messiah because I just baptized you with water. But there's going to become one that will baptize you with the very presence of God. The Spirit of God will come to live in your life through him. And one day John the Baptist with thousands of Judean Jews gathered around him. And Jews from up in Galilee and Jews from over on the other side of Transjordan. They're all gathered together. And suddenly John the Baptist looked and there was Jesus coming towards him. He cried out these words, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. German young people stood up and the Fuhrer raised his hand in that salute. And by the millions, they saluted him and said, The Fuhrer, the Fuhrer. I want you to get down on your faces, young people, children, adults, and I want to join you before the Lamb that was slain. Behold, The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what Revelation is about. You go out into a popular culture today that doesn't know about this Lamb. Most of your friends, your unbelieving friends, think of Jesus as just a lowly carpenter, a very good ethical teacher, maybe an avant-garde rabbi. Some of your friends think of him as Jesus the revolutionary. I got news for you. Jesus is the only person in all of creation who can go to the creator God and take the scroll of history out of his hand because he's the lamb that was slain. And I want to share something else with you. He is standing today. Amen? Can you imagine how different the picture would be? Some of you have worshipped the crucifix. Jesus hanging on the cross. He's dead. I want you to see that's not the symbol that John calls you to bow before today. I want you to understand it's so important the symbols that you follow. It's so important the symbols you bow before. It's so important the symbol that you really believe in. 
And this is the symbol that you're to worship. You're to bow before this symbol. It is the lamb, and that lamb is standing. You know why he's standing? Because he's alive today. He has the marks of slaughter in his being, but he is alive. He is standing. He is standing because he conquered death. He rose again from the dead. The lamb is not dead. He is standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He has seven horns, which represent his powerful right to rule. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's a beautiful way for John the Apostle to present his theology to us that Jesus promised, if I go and be glorified, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And I trust that every one of you have come to that moment in your life where you believed in Jesus and Jesus has sent forth his spirit to live in you. Notice that he, the spirit presented as the seven eyes of God that are going forth in the old earth. I want you to know that that's saying that Jesus is totally aware of what's happening on planet earth. Jesus has the seven perfect eyes of the Spirit going into all the earth. He has seven horns, which means he has perfect almighty strength to affect his will. And we decide whether we will worship before him. It says, he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures fell down with the 24 elders and they worshiped the Lord. And that's where we're going to pick it up as we continue. But I want you today, I want you to be like an avant-garde group of people that are worshiping the lamb. You say, Dave, why should I worship the lamb? Why shouldn't I worship someone else? Because last Friday, two of my close friends... They were having a birthday party. And after the birthday party, they had a lot of their, their son's friends. Their best, his son's best friend, Jacob, was there. Jacob was just a little guy. And Rhonda was in cutting the cake, not thinking anything about it, because the, Jacob's parents were right there. Peggy Lundquist was there. She's a pediatrician. Man, you couldn't be in a more safe place. But suddenly, as they were cutting the cake, they... They looked around and Jacob was gone. They thought maybe he'd gone to the bathroom. They checked there. He wasn't there. And terror gripped their heart. Rhonda and Jacob's mom ran into the backyard and looked into the pool, but he wasn't there. Jim ran into a side yard and he wasn't there playing in the swings and stuff like that. And Jim just happened to look. It wasn't 10 or 15 seconds after Rhonda and Jacob's mom had run to the backyard. Jim ran to that side yard and he looked. And there up against the pool was Jacob at the bottom of the pool. And the thud of horror and death gripped that whole group. They dove in, pulled Jacob off the bottom. No heartbeat, nothing. They worked and worked and worked, did all the respiratory things you could do. They rushed him eventually after an hour and a half. They got him over to Waxahachie. And Jim just wrote me a letter. His blood count was 6.8, which meant he should have been, from a medical standpoint, he should have been gone. In fact, Jim just wrote me these words about this experience they had with Jacob. The third level of the miracle must be recognized when you realize the triumph of faith over science. Jacob's arterial blood pH upon arrival at the Baylor Wasatch ED was 6.9. As you know, this level is not compatible with life for very long and usually indicates that a sustained period, four or five minutes of anoxia had taken place. The biochemistry text would tell us that the cells functioning without oxygen will produce a chemical called lactic acid. The acid will drop the pH further after all the body's buffers are exhausted. The pH level found in Jacob was scary, and it was worse. 
We all anticipated that he would have a kidney and liver damage. He would have a neurological coma and aspiration pneumonia. We were pleaded he was alive, barely, but we were worried about what would be neurologically wrong as he hung for life on the ventilator. The tears flowed as the weight of the future began to settle upon us. We came to believe that if he lived, he would not recover to be the same child we had known. That was last Friday night. But people prayed. You guys prayed for Jacob. On Sunday night, Jim and Rhonda got a telephone call. You see, early in the day, Jim and Rhonda went out and said, if, if little Jacob ever recovers, uh, Liz Barkley is going to be mean to him and make him blow on that respiratory tube and make him take all those breathing treatments. And we want to help him get ready. And we think that maybe little Jacob, if we got him a harmonica, maybe that would help him to at least have a little bit of fun trying to get those lungs that they thought would never function again to get them going. Late Sunday night, a week ago tonight, Rhonda told me they got a telephone call late at night as Jim and Rhonda were in bed getting ready to go to sleep. And little Jacob's parents said, Jim and Rhonda, we just thought you'd like to hear a little bit of sound, a little bit of music before you go to bed. And Jim and Rhonda put the phone between them on their bed they heard this little bitty kid, Jacob, with that harmonica, tooting away. And Jacob is totally well, totally fine, skillfully like little kids coloring watercolors. You know why? Because you worship a lamb that's standing. Do you believe that? That's what this church is about, brothers and sisters. Jim and Rhonda are both medical doctors. Medically, there was not hope. Medically, the biotech said he's gone. Medically, the biotech said that he's not going to be well forever. But in this case, in this case, Jesus said, I'm going to give little Jacob life. You know why? Because he wants you to understand that he's the standing lamb. That he's the one that answers our prayers, that that we can trust and that we can believe. Brothers and sisters, what we're about is the real thing, ultimate destiny. It's about armies that march. It's about the battles for our schools. And there's no room for neutral territory. You're either going to be a medical doctor that exercises great skill in medicine, but you realize that there comes a time when medicine is not going to be enough and you're going to be a medical doctor that prays and asks Jesus to heal. You're going to be a judge that doesn't believe that all your legal training is going to be enough, but you're going to ask Jesus to be those seven eyes that give you wisdom and understanding so that we can have a culture of peace. You're going to be a school teacher that prays for your kids. It's not enough just to educate their heads, but you're going to be praying daily that you're going to introduce, you're going to somehow, some way, 
that you're going to be an encouragement to help young people find the lamb that's standing with the, with the, the reason we gather together, the reason we worship God, the reason that we sing, the reason we give praise is because he is a lamb standing and he can give us eternal life and he can answer our prayers and he can give life to Jacob and he can give eternal life, but nothing's going to separate us from his love. That's what Revelation's really about. And we can be coasting along learning all about prophecy, learning all the details, and we can miss it. It's about getting down on our knees, getting down on our faces, and adoring this precious lamb. It's about giving him the total control of our life. It's going to be Jesus. You need to meet this lamb of God. He is the one that can grab the scroll of destiny. He is the one that's paid the penalty for our sin. No one else has done that. I don't want us to be double-minded about it. I want us to go all the way with him. Let's worship the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David from Jesse, the lamb that stands because he's alive forevermore that was wounded for us. 